see, and uh, we're conflating two weeks today uh, because, as Pastor Otto mentioned, we had snow back in January, and, and we have a very tight schedule that we're trying to accomplish this task of the story on. So we're bringing together two weeks, and we figured if, if the northern kingdom was going to fall and the southern kingdom was going to fall, let's just have them fall together. Uh, so that's what we decided to do. So I'm going to have you turn your Bibles this morning. Let's, if you've got your story Bible, turn to page 238. If you've got a standard Bible, you're going to want to be in Jeremiah 2. Turn your ears on Jeremiah 2 today. Ezekiel chapter 36, and then 2 Chronicles 36. So those will be what you want to do. Has a, had a very busy weekend here at the church. Uh, the Stony Glen campus of VL Church uh, already met this morning. So our men's retreat is going on, and uh, a bunch of our guys are up in Madison, Ohio, and, and they're uh, probably uh, stopping their service right about now and, and heading back to the pond to fish uh, right at this moment. So they're doing that this morning, so we miss a bunch of them today. Also, uh, yesterday, we, we had a beautiful home going for one of our beloved members, Bob McLean, and uh, just a beautiful service, and so many of his kids, grandkids, great-grandkids attend Victory Life, so if you see them today, give them a warm hug and, uh, and just share a little bit of God's faithfulness and goodness with them. What I want to do today is do a little bit of an introduction before we get into the message proper. Can I have about three minutes to, to help bring us here uh, to the point we're at in the story? Then we'll pray, and we'll get started with the message. But uh, James is going to put a slide up here on the screen for me with a little bit of a brief timeline. What we've seen in the story is the rise of this kingdom. Remember, we started with one man and one woman, Abraham and Sarai. We start with these two people, and God says, I'm going to use you to bless the world. You're going to increase and multiply. You're going to be my people, and the world is going to see me through you. That started way back in 2000 B.C. They come to a kingdom under David in 1000 B.C., but as we've talked about in the previous weeks, the kingdom split in two. Uh, and both of those kingdoms, both the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was Judah, didn't serve the God who had called Abraham didn't serve the God who had brought them out of the Red Sea or through the Red Sea and out of, uh, out of Egypt. Didn't serve the God who had given them a culture and a call and a covenant at Mount Sinai. Didn't serve the God who had given them the promised land. And it, the northern kingdom really never ever has a time that they're serving the Lord after it splits. And so after 200 years, they are destroyed. Destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. At that time, the prophet Isaiah was down in Judah, in Jerusalem, and he was prophesying and in, the, in the heyday of his ministry. And at that time, he says some of the most important things that we see in the prophets in Isaiah's chapter 9 and 11, that one day, God's going to send a Savior, one that's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and, and rule, there will be no end. But also, that that Savior is going to suffer for the sins of humanity and bear their sins upon his back. Isaiah saying these things at the time of the fall of the northern kingdom. Only through the providence of God does the southern kingdom survive for about another 135 years. But in 586, for the third time in 20 years, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come to town. And this time they completely destroy Jerusalem. They burn it. And the temple, the very place that God's presence had filled not 500 years before, was destroyed completely. And for 70 years, almost no descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in the promised land. Can you imagine? Now, if you're new to this whole thing, you might say, well, what happened? Did God die? Was he sleeping? 
How could God allow this to happen to his people? But the wild truth is, is that God ordained it. God allowed the destruction of his kingdoms, but he did so with a purpose. And if we can see his purpose and his plan today, I believe that our vision of who our God is might change for the better for the rest of our lives. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us great wisdom and just clarity of mind today as we work through your word in the fall, especially today of the southern kingdom. God, I pray that we would see you for who you are, and if we can see you for who you are, that we would be blessed in knowing the one true God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I got to middle school, there was someone known as Mr. B. Mr. B was the disciplinarian of Bolick Middle School. There was only one principal, but there were over 600 students, and the principal couldn't keep 600 middle schoolers in line because middle school is insane. Nobody liked middle school, not ever, and everybody misbehaves. And so they had a designated disciplinarian. He had an office in the main office, and he was the terror of the middle school. You did not want to cross this guy in the hall. You did not want to go to his office. In fact, if you could avoid him for three years, you thought you would be the better for it. Mr. B was scary. Mr. B had a fierce temper. Mr. B uh, doled out punishment that everybody always thought was unfair. You did not want to get sent to Mr. B's office. He was a tough dude. You heard about him from the time you came into middle school in the sixth grade that you got to avoid this guy because he is the punisher of all people. Well, I was a pretty good kid in middle school, didn't get in a lot of trouble, got a couple of detentions, that kind of thing now and again. I hung out with some of your brothers, and I can't say the same for them, but, but uh, I, I, I didn't get in too much trouble, didn't get sent to Mr. B's office all that much, except one time I did. One time I got in a physical altercation in the hallway. It's a different story for another day. I'll use it as a different sermon, illustri sermon illustration. But I got in a physical altercation, and the very next period, that PA system opened. It says, ah, Mrs. So-and-so, can you send Matthew Skifstad to Mr. B's office immediately? And I thought, this is it. This is the day I die. So I began to tremble and shuffle my way down to Mr. B's office. And I made my way to his doorway, and there he was. He says, sit down, Skifstad. I thought, well, good, at least he knows my last name. He can notify my parents after my death. And so I again, and I sat down. I sat down, and he leaned back in his chair, and he put his feet up, and he crossed his arms, and he smiled. But it wasn't a nice smile. It wasn't the type of smile that you ever want to see on another face of a human being. And he looked at me and said, what are you here for? So I told him, even though he knew, I told him why I was there. He says, what'd you do that for? And I told him why I did what I did. And he smiled even wider. And I'm pretty sure, if my memory serves, he called me an idiot right there in his office. If you, could you imagine if you said that to a kid today? Your parents would be up to school so quick, right? And then, <laughs> then he says, don't do that. Don't do that. And I said, okay, I won't ever again. He said, Fine, go back to class. So I stood up, and at first I walked slow. I didn't want to make it seem like I was longing to run. And then I made it out of the office, walking a little bit faster, and then I booked it down the hall because I figured that could not be it. But he sent me back to class. And I thought, what just happened? That's the punisher. Yeah, he made fun of me and called me an idiot, but that was the worst thing that happened. 
And I, I, I got back to class and I thought, what, what, what was that? And, and it's not that I observed this guy like intently the rest of my time in middle school, but I, I did notice that some of the kids who were the worst behaved in sixth and seventh grade became Mr. B's best friends by the eighth grade. He'd walk down the hall, put their arm around him, shove him into a locker, yell at them jokingly, you know? But, but it, some of the worst troublemakers loved him. Now, I still steered clear to him because he was intimidating, i got to be honest. But I realized that he wasn't just the punisher. In fact, he was something else entirely. Sometimes when we read the Bible, if our lens is a little bit jaded, we can see God through the lens of the punisher. But I think we'll see today that he's something else entirely. And how you see the Lord truly wholly depends on you. But if you see him rightly, if you see him in the right light for who he really is, it'll be a blessing to you for your whole life long. Let's look at Israel's infractions first this morning in Jeremiah chapter 2. What is it that allows these falls to take place? What had they violated? What was the, what was the issue? Well, Jeremiah lays it out in great summary in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, page 238 in the story. Let's read it. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. What is the infraction of God's people? They have completely and utterly exchanged God's. They have exchanged the big G God for a bunch of little G gods, false gods, fake gods, created things, created beings, idols, worthless things. Never mind the fact that they had a heritage that was incredible. They were the people that God had chosen, the people that God had delivered, the people that God had called. They forgot all of that, and they didn't just... They didn't just say, God, we're going to ignore you for a few weeks or a few months or just go on about our lives and make some mistakes. They completely walked away from him, even though they had a covenant with him, a covenant by which he would bless them and they would represent him. So let us never get to the concept that the Israelites were displaced from the promised land because of some minor infractions, some small mess-ups. These people had totally abandoned the one true God, and they looked just like the people around them in the other nations surrounding Israel and Judah. They had exchanged the God who had revealed himself in power and in strength. Remember last week, Mount Carmel? God had revealed himself and proved himself and shown himself and warned them over and over and over again, and they still wanted nothing to do with him. They'd completely forsaken him. The Israelites weren't expected to be perfect. Read the law. It wasn't minor infractions here. In fact, the law talks about what to do when people violate the law, right? And, and, and the, the new covenant tells us what to do. When we violate our covenant with God, it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does God expect his people to be perfect? No. But these people were called, they did have a covenant, and they walked all the way away from God. And he says, your sins are double. The first sin is, you've forsaken me, 
You've forsaken living water. You've forsaken life itself. You've forsaken the God who is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You have forsaken the one true God who is good and right and holy, and you've said, I don't want any part of you anymore. You've completely walked away from the source of life. And you've begun to dug, dig your own cistern. You've begun to say, I'm going to tell you why, my, why I'm here. I'm going to tell you what brings my life meaning. I'm going to decide what my life is about and what is good and what is right and what is wrong. I am going, in essence, to say that I'm the spring of living water, that I'm the reason that I live. It's a double sin. It's a really bad trade. Now, for those of you who love sports, you've seen some really bad trades. In fact, the Cleveland Browns were just a beneficiary of a really bad trade, and it pleases me immensely. I'll see you in September. But anyhow, <laughs> I once made a terrible trade, an awful trade. I used to have trading cards. I don't know if that's still a thing, but I had baseball cards and football player cards, and I'd, I'd go over and spend the night at my friend's house, and we'd trade cards back and forth. Well, I had an autographed card of a World Series MVP. It's a pretty good card. And in a fit of utter stupidity, I traded that card for the card of a journeyman NFL quarterback. Journeyman means he wasn't any good. And I came home and I told my dad about the trade that I had made. And I saw Jeremiah chapter 2 played out before my eyes. <laughs> the heavens were appalled. And I saw my dad shudder with pure anger over a baseball card trade. And he said to me, you get that card back. What's wrong with you? And I said, I don't know that I can get it back. He says, you get it back. And I went back to my buddy. I said, I got to get that card back. He goes, no way, dude. It's final. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I got to get that card back. He's like, uh, no, I'm not giving it back to you. I was like, I, I have to get it back. My dad is going to kill me. And so he said, all right, well, I'm going to go through your deck. Give me 15 of your best cards, and I'll give that one back to you. Oh, he drove a hard bargain. He should run a pawn shop today. I don't know. But anyhow. It was a terrible trade. My dad was appalled. And that's what the Lord says when he looks at Israel. P people should look at this and be appalled. Oh, no. Why? What are you doing? <sighs> this is terrible. And that's what the Israelites had done. They had made an appalling trade. This is one of the saddest things to observe as a pastor is when people are making this trade. Because you can see it sometimes. Because don't we all walk away from the source of living water now and again? Let's be honest, right? God is life itself. God is meaning. God is purpose. God is love. God is goodness. God is righteousness. We walk away from the source. We, 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 we get away from God. But a lot of times we're like that child on the playground. We're looking back going, we can get back there. It's no big deal. But, but Israel's sin was double. They walked away from the source. They walked completely away. They forgot where it was. And then they started to say, I'll give my own life meaning and purpose and value and, and decide what's right and wrong. So they, they'd completely forsaken. And, and you've seen people do this, and it's sad because they, they end up in a hole full of dirt. There's no water there. There's no life there. There's no ultimate happiness, joy, or peace there. It's not a good trade. And, and you shudder and you're appalled. And that's what Israel has done. Now, this is not a one-time deal either. God is long-suffering. God is faithful. God is patient. Look at page 241 in the story, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. It says, 
the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked his messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. So it wasn't like they had moved against God and God had said, well, bad trade, you're out. For hundreds of years, he sent messengers, he sent his words, he sent prophet, he sent fire on Mount Carmel to win them back. It didn't work. I remember I had this discussion with a friend of mine in college. He said, boy, God is a humble God. I said, God is humble. God like tells us to worship and to praise him and to honor him. I don't see God as humble. But then, if you really think about it, there is a humility in God that he, he engages in this relentless pursuit of human beings. He, he engages in coming after us again and again and again. You ever seen a guy chasing a girl who's just not into him? You ever, you ever observe that? And you're like, that guy is pitiful. He just needs to leave her alone. He doesn't get it. She's not interested. Think about the level of humility that the God of the universe has to pursue you. And to pursue me. That's a level of humility. Now, I'm not saying that God's after us like some lovesick teenager. I'm not saying that. I would never equate God to that. But what humility to pursue us over and over and over again in our lives. Isn't he a humble God? And he was humble towards Israel. Even though they forsook him and they dug their own cisterns, he kept coming after them and after them and after him. And it says they mocked and they despised and they scoffed. That is not pertinent to my life. That's an outmoded way of thinking. And the person who brought me the message is an idiot and an alarmist. That's what they've said for hundreds of years. They've rejected the relentless pursuit of God. So those are the infractions. Not only, not only do they exchange gods, but they rejected God's relentless pursuit. And if you look at it that way, you might look at me and go, Pastor Matt, I get it. I see why he punished them. They're deserving of punishment. And truly they were. They were deserving of punishment. But that is not the entire story of the exile. That is not the entire story of why God does what he does. I want us to see God's reasoning. And that's on page 245 in the story, or in Ezekiel chapter 36, 22 and following. Ezekiel is living in Babylon after the first of two exiles of the southern kingdom. Only the rich and powerful have been taken away. Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed. And Ezekiel is prophesying from Babylon about the eventual fall of the entire land of Judah, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is what Ezekiel prophesies in 36, 22, page 245. Therefore say to the Israelites, God told Ezekiel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them, and then the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy before, through you before their eyes. Now remember, every time you read Lord in your Bible, that is how we translate Yahweh in the English. We translate it as Lord. 
And Yahweh was the Hebrew name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. Existence himself. I'm the one true God. And why does God say he's doing what he's doing in Israel? For his namesake. Because people need to know that he is the one true God. People need to know that he is after them and wants a relationship with them. And even though they have chosen to dig their own cisterns throughout their lives, he wants them to know who he is. He wants them to have a relationship with him to give them purpose and meaning and hope and eternal life. That's what he's doing. He is trying to unveil his name to the world. So, as he looks at his people, Israel, who have been called to be the lens through which he is seen in the world, he says, Israel, do you not remember that I called you through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that I saved you from famine in Canaan, that I delivered you from slavery in Egypt, that I caused you to increase and multiply, that I gave you a covenant, a culture, and a call at Mount Sinai, that I brought you into the promised land, that I gave you a land that was your own, that I prospered you under David and Solomon, but I want you to know that everything that I have done was for my name's sake. It wasn't because you were special. It's not, on, it's, not, it's not on account of you even that I'm exiling you. It's not on account of you that I'm allowing this to happen. It's on account of me. I have a plan and I have a purpose in this world to draw all men and women to me, and you've messed up the plan. He says, you've profaned my name. Now, I don't use the word profane a lot in, 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 in conversation. Maybe I will this week because I preached on it. Who knows? But we do have the word profanity that we use, don't we? And profanity is what we call dirty words, right? That's what profanity means, dirty words. What God is saying is, you have dirtied up my name in the earth. You've dirtied it up. And I just have this mental picture of the Israelites digging in their own cisterns and throwing it back on the window of Israel. If, if the window is Israel, and God is standing on one side of the window, and humanity is standing on the other, and humanity is supposed to see through that window that is Israel to see God, the Israelites, by their digging, have muddied up that window completely. They dirtied it up. And every time God sent them a prophet or a messenger or someone to say, come back to me, they dug another spadeful and threw it on the window. Ignored him completely. Because that was Israel's call. They were to be the lens, the window through which God's power and his goodness and his love and his faithfulness was to be seen. But they forsook God and they dirtied up his name. And God says, my name is holy. That means set apart. I'm not like anything else. I'm not like you all. I'm not like anything on earth. I am set apart. I am holy. I am different. I'm not like any of these any of these projections that you human beings have made, which you call God, I'm not like any of them. I'm different. I'm set apart. I'm holy. So you as my people, you are supposed to be different. You are supposed to be set apart. You are supposed to be holy so that people could see me, and they can't. They can't see me through you. You've dirtied up my name on the earth. And therefore, the punishment that should be yours is going to be yours, not just on account of you. It's right here but for my namesake.
for my glory and my fame. Now, as I look at that, it's, it's troubling. Because if God allows his people and his kingdom to be destroyed and dispersed, what's to keep his people and his kingdom from just being a footnote in history? Wouldn't people look at Yahweh God, who they've heard about, the same way that we look at Zeus and Poseidon today, as just myths of another generation of human beings? Think about this. When did I tell you that Ezekiel was prophesying? Before the full collapse of the kingdom of Israel. Before all of this has taken place, he says that that Israel is going, or Judah, the southern kingdom more specifically, is going to be destroyed. But look what he says next in verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from the countries, and I will bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Before his kingdom has even fallen, he says to his people, I'm going to make it so that you return. He said in verse 23, I'm going to prove myself holy through you. I'm going to prove myself set apart through you. What nation comes back from being destroyed and dispersed? Think about that. Destroyed, dispersed, wiped from the face of the earth, and then all of a sudden they get their land back and they are sent back, but that's exactly what God is going to do. It's outrageous. It's outstanding. But it's outrageous. When a country is destroyed and dispersed, they don't return. They don't, re- they don't come back. But in 70 years, after the Babylonian captivity, as it has come to be called, God's people are going to return to the Holy Land. They're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're going to build God a temple again. In the religion of Yahweh God, is going to flourish on the earth. Imagine that. Imagine that. God does not remove his hand from his people. Even after all of this, not only does he show his love and his faithfulness, but he shows his power in all the earth. And and, That works for today, too, friends. Because after rejecting his Messiah in 70 A.D., the people of Israel were destroyed and dispersed once more. Yet somehow, just as the prophets of the Bible had foretold, 1,800 years later, the Jewish people are in Israel today. The religion of Yahweh still stands. And though there's conflict with the concept of Jesus as Messiah, what nation returns after being destroyed and dispersed twice? God says, I will be proved holy before their eyes through you. The exile happens to prove that God is on the throne.
and for his name and his fame. And God is still returning people from exile today. He is still bringing people back from the dirt hole that they have dug and pulling them out of the miry pit. And he does it for his name's sake that others may know that he is God. That others may know that he is relentlessly pursuing men and women even today. Some of you are sitting here today and you were in the deepest waterless cistern and God in his relentless pursuit plucked you out of there and said you're mine I love you and I care about you and your life is going to be for my name and my fame because I am pursuing others in this world just like Why has God saved you? Was it on on account of your holiness? Was it on account of your personal goodness that God saved you? Was it on account of the fact that you were just awesome and God needed you? Or did he save you for his great name and his great fame? That in saving one such as you and one such as I, we would be the lens through which other people would see him and know that he is good and know that what they have suffered, he can make right and know that what they have sinned, he can forgive and know that what that they have, have messed up and destroyed, he can remake. God wants to have himself seen through you today. The call has not been lifted from any one of us. You say, Pastor Matt, I'm suffering today, and I'm one of God's people. Your only question should be not why, but what. God, how are you going to use this for your name and your fame in the earth? What are you going to do through me in this circumstance? What is the picture on the other side of this struggle that you're giving me for your name and your fame because you are good and you are loving and you are gracious and you are so humble that you are relentlessly pursuing my family and you are relentlessly pursuing my friends and you are relentlessly pursuing the students at my school and my coworkers and my neighbors. You're relentlessly pursuing them. Lord, what are you going to do through the circumstance today or the circumstances of the past what altars can I point to today to say God is good God is faithful God loves you and he's after you that's the question when we face our exiles that's the question when we see our suffering God what are you going to do through me in this and we look to the other side of our captivity and say God is going to use me for his name and his fame and it's worth it because I know that he is good He's not the punisher. He's the redeemer. He's not the punisher. He is life itself. And he's trying to save a lost and a dying world. And all the judgments of the Lord are good. And they are right. And they are for us. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, some of us here today are suffering. Maybe it's through our own sin. Maybe it's just because the world has fallen and it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. But Lord, we know from your word that even in hardship you desire to lead us. Even in suffering you have a plan. Even when we face things that we don't understand, you work together for the good because you've called us and you love us according to your good purpose. God, can we see you for who you are today? Not some mean, maleficent, angry punisher, but one who has shown great humility in coming after us. And one who has suffered for us. One who has paid our punishment, taken our exile, freed us from our captivity, and given it to us as a gift called grace in the name of his son, Jesus. are but light and momentary afflictions compared to the weight of glory that will be revealed when we see our Lord face to face. For just a few minutes here at Victory Life, we end every service with prayer because we feel like it's more important than you, that you talk to God than I tell you who God is or what he wants of you. He can do that just as powerfully as I can through his still small voice. In fact, just as powerfully is not fair. <laughs> so much better. He can do it so much better. So at the end of each service, we just take a few minutes to pray and listen for the voice of our Lord so that he can speak. It's not going to be weird. It's not going to be long. But we do ask that you would just open your heart to him even now. And our prayer team is going to come and they're going to stand at this thing we call an altar. They're coming right now. And if you are facing suffering today, if you're facing something that feels like exile, a captivity, and you just need the strength and the hope and the power of the Lord to be displayed in your life, they're here to pray with you. So for just a few minutes as, as we open this altar, if you need prayer this morning, you came in with a heavy burden, a heavy heart. There's people who want to pray for you today and ask that God's hope, peace, healing, and deliverance would be yours. That's why they're here. But our prayer today is, Lord, carry me in what I face today. Lord, help me to see you rightly today. Help me to see you for who you are. And Lord, give me a vision right now 
of what you're going to do through my life for your name and your fame. That's our call to prayer today.